Leslie Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we love to tell stories of people performing random acts of kindness. We often have that segment here on our show, and very often it's produced and wrapped up and narrated. But we felt like this story needed more personal attention. Not that the others aren't personal, but this one, we just wanted to talk to the parties and have you hear this story yourselves from them and Diazerome suffers from cerebral palsy, a movement condition that makes it very hard for her to walk on her own. So six fraternity brothers from the University of Central Arkansas decided to be her legs for a day. They carried her up a thousand-foot mountain. They each took turns giving her piggyback rides until they got to the top. Diage is here with us today to talk about this experience, and also one of the brothers, one of those fraternity brothers, Benji Richards, thank you both for joining us. You're welcome. You're so welcome, man. You bet. And Diaja, let's start with you. Um, You obviously wanted to see the top of this mountain. You wanted to get to the top. Why did you want to do that and talk about what what it felt like to get this offer from these from these fraternity boys? You know, I just seen all the pictures. You know, the people locally around um, Arkansas and Conway. <laughs> I've just seen all the pictures on Instagram, you know, Facebook, everybody, the joys of getting to the top, you know. That was something I wanted to do. Um, and I was just like, yeah, I'm going to do this. Like, nothing's going to stop me from, um, from doing this and something that I want to do just because I have a disability doesn't mean that I can't do something that everybody else does. And just to get the opportunity from these guys to climb this mountain, I was overjoyed. I was like, yeah, man, let's do it. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, yeah, man, let's do it. Did you know these uh, fraternity brothers? Yes. Um, Actually, um, my... um, I met them through, like, a wiffle ball tournament that we had. Um, it was pretty cool. Um, in the middle, like, um, I'm in the middle team with them, and we just played softball. And uh, that was how we met. And, I, of course, I had seen them around campus and things like that. So I was just like, yeah, man, I already know these guys, and I've developed some trust, so why not? Let's do it. Yeah, you got to have some trust in somebody who's carrying you up a mountain, Diaja. And uh, Benji, Benji, talk about uh, how you ca- had come to know Diaja, uh, and talk a bit about uh, your fraternity as well and the brothers and how this idea came to fruition. Um, well, we, like Diaja said, we met her through um, with, uh, some intramurals, uh, a co-rec wiffle ball tournament we had on our campus, um, and so our fraternity was teamed up with her sorority, and... Um, we uh, and Diaja was actually on our team, and so she pulled up in her wheelchair and was even batting uh, on the team. So that that's how we actually met her, and so we we're all kind of impressed. We're like, okay, you know, like she's not going to let anything stop her. Um, now, how the idea came about is we had actually seen a chapter for a different fraternity do this up in the Northeast. Um, there was a post that had been shared where they had a brother that also had um, cerebral palsy, and they carried him. And I can't remember if the idea started with myself or um, Cesar Ramirez, but one of us was just like, hey, what if we did this? And then uh, I remember pushing the idea to um, some of the members that I knew, 
in her sorority, and eventually just they got the baby D, and she was like, yeah, let's do it. So we set up a time to go. And we love doing these segments because, well, the media loves to cast millennials in a certain light, young people in a certain light, and I live in a college town, and I've never been more impressed by a generation and I hate seeing older people looking at younger people and saying, ah, back when we were better kids, life was better, and you all stink. I mean, that's just what older people always do to younger people. But I've witnessed quite the opposite. And the same with fraternities, who especially after that terrible UVA story at the Rolling Stone, sort of cast all fraternities as just, well, something they're not. And talk a little bit about uh, Diaja, the, your experience with this fraternity and these brothers, because my goodness, what a story. And how did, how did it make you feel? And then how did you set about going to do this, Diaja? Um, it made me feel awesome. You know, just that um, a group of guys, you know, just wanted to do this for me out of, out of the compassion of their hearts. You know, it's, um, I was, I posted on Facebook yesterday. I was like, it's the smallest things in life um, that make individuals happy and bring about the greatest amounts of happiness <laughs> so just for these guys to like you know spend some time out of their day to actually you know help this little this little goal of mine this little dream of mine to come true and you know um, give away some um some sweat and some muscle <laughs> to do this for me it was just awesome i can't Words can't even describe. When I got to the top, I was like, "Wow!" And Benji, it's a whole nother, it's a whole nother ball game up there. It is, and you know, you said something so wonderful, and that is, in the end, it's something we try and talk about regularly on this show. If you want to really go after social justice in this country, do something really radical. Help a total stranger. Do something wonderful and beautiful for another person. And if we all did that every day, we would have social justice coming at us so darn fast. So darn fast in every way, shape, and form. Benji, talk about how hard it was, or not hard it was, to enlist a bunch of guys to do this. Give me just a short answer here. We're going to come back on the other side of the break and then talk about the actual walk. Um, honestly, it was really simple. I just mentioned to a few of the guys, and they said, let's do it. Uh, there wasn't really any challenge to it. Um, so I was like, hey, we're going to carry the uh, Aja up this mountain. And they're like, all right, let's go. Just tell me in time. Well, hold that thought. And by the way, that's why I knew it would be a short answer, because that's the American spirit, frankly. There's no committees. There's no Grand Cuba calling the shots. A couple of guys go, hey, let's help this beautiful young lady. Let's let her live her dream. And you just went and did it. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, the story of a fraternity brother and a sorority sister, and these brothers and sisters coming together to achieve a dream. Well, actually, a whole bunch of dreams, actually. Because when we live other people's dreams, through them and with them, we live our own. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories. We're talking to Benji Richards, 
and Diaja Romes. And this is a story from the University of Central Arkansas. A young lady with cerebral palsy wanted to climb a mountaintop. And some fraternity brothers said, what the heck, let's do this. And so they did it. And Benji, I want to go to you. First of all, what's the name of your fraternity? Give a shout out to the fraternity. I know that matters a lot to y'all. And then what did you what did you do? Talk about what steps you took and then talk about this climb. Um, well, I'm a part of Phi Gamma Delta, or uh, Fiji, um, as we're commonly known as, um, at University of Central Arkansas. And um, in terms of the steps that we took to make it happen, um, really, we, we set a time and a date to go and meet there, and like I collected a few of the guys. Um, the only really outside planning we did was we spent a lot of time discussing how we were going to carry Diaja. Um there was, that was an interesting discussion. We went through different things about trying to figure out how to like bring her to our back and finally ended up settling on just, we'll just piggyback ride her the entire way up. So, or give her a piggyback ride the entire way up. And so what did you do? Switch, switch up, just go from guy to guy. How did you do it? Um, yeah, so we would just, uh, I think I took the first leg and you just start going right up the mountain. Um, and then, Honestly, a lot of us were football players, so this kind of was similar to us as if we were just doing, we were back in uh, the football team just working out doing lunges, but after a while we would, you know, kind of wear out and need a break. We would find a, like a tall standing rock that we could set her on where we wouldn't have to squat down and set her on the ground, and then we would just kind of trade her around like that. And so you, you had how many fellas with you on this walk? I want to say about six. About six. And again, all members of Fiji as well, correct? Yeah. Great. And Diaja, so you, you, get the, you get the call from these guys, and then you realize you're going to be piggybacked up a mountain. Were you a little worried at first? Um, honestly, um, just the type of person I am, I was like, nah, man, um, I'm not worried at all. Of course, there were a couple times where I was like, Oh crap! I might like we might go down, but we're going down together. Yep, so, you're going down together. <laughs> That's some cool. of the rocks were, were slippery, but I was like, no man, we're a team. We got this. If if one goes down, we all go down. And and let's talk about as you're going up that mountain and you're getting up to the top. Uh, talk about that moment when you get to the top of the mountain, Diasha. Uh, we were about a couple feet away from the top, and I was. I was getting anxious. I was like, man, is it really like the pictures? Like, is everybody just hyping this up for no reason? But um, when we got to the top, you know, it was, it was pretty hot because we, we um, started coming up in the middle of the day but, um, and all sweating and stuff. But I was like, wow, the sky is like limitless up here. I feel like I can literally do anything from the top of this mountain. I could scream at the top of my lungs and, like, nobody, like, the sky was listening, you know? It's kind of like when land meets the sky, you didn't you didn't really know where the um, the line was drawn. That's beautiful. So awesome. That's beautiful. You have, and if you could, we'd love to have you send a, a, I'm sure you took some pictures. Send them to our team here, and we'll post them up on the website. Uh, because we can't wait to see them. And so, Benji, you, you, you get up to the top of the mountain. You've never climbed a mountain with a person on your back before. How did it make you feel? Because, I, I, you know, we have the deep feeling on this show that when you do well for others, 
uh, it, it makes you feel better than doing for yourself. Yeah, uh, it was definitely um, pretty exhilarating. Uh, it was really rewarding um, to get her all the way up there. She was really excited. We were a little tired, um, honestly. But, uh, you know, getting up there, you kind of, we hit our second win. We got that, sec- uh, that rush of energy because um, Daza was so um, excited to be up there and, you know, she, you, you're listening to her talk about what it was like and trying to describe it, and that you can imagine that her physical reaction of her just being like, oh, look at all this, it's so cool. Um, so, yeah, it was definitely a very rewarding experience being able to get her up there. Now, I heard you guys are planning to do this again. Yes, so we've, we've actually already taken her on two trips since. Um, we were trying to plan one this December, but uh, everyone's back home, so it made it a little difficult. Um, but we actually went to Petty Jean State Park, um, and that's a park here that has a, a waterfall. Um, and we actually got her in the waterfall because she said she wanted to be in it. So that was it involved um, two of us putting her in a chair and swimming her across a pool to get her to the waterfall. Um, and then we took her to Mount Magazine and we hiked her up to the highest or the tallest elevation um, in the state of Arkansas, also. Oh, so you got yourself a real hiking partner there, don't you? Yeah. And, and, and uh, Diaja, for all the folks who, who and we, we do this often here on the show, talk about folks with disabilities, because we, we, we think and deeply believe that all people are children of God and that, well, you know, there's nothing anyone can, can or can't do except what's in their own mind. Talk to all the folks listening to may have, who may have relatives who have cerebral palsy, or suffer from some other uh, 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 some other uh, calamity that occurred early in their life, but that they overcame. That they overcame. Talk about them, Talk to them directly about that, Diaja, if you could. Yeah, you guys. Uh, it can be hard sometimes, you know, um, having a disability and getting um, stereotyped. Oh, you can't do this, or you can't do that. Well, I'm living, breathing proof. Um, that they, the disabled are indeed able and can achieve, achieve great things if you just put your mind to it and, you know, grit and bear it and get down and actually do what you want to do, put those people wrong and, um, you know, just have fun. Um, you know, having a disability has its ups, has its downs, but at the end of the day, you just have to believe that you really want to do something and have the diligence to get it done and have fun, you know. It's all about the happiness in life and getting um, getting as much of it as you can out of life. I mean, because life is short. You can't really wait around um, for someone to do something for you. you got to get out and do it if you really want it. Um, just go for it, man. Yeah, we think here, and we often bump into what I call the bigotry of low expectations, and that is the second somebody has some kind of problem, we set the bar lower on those people, and that's the worst thing to do to folks. Um, And you have set the bar high on yourself, Diaja, and I'm so happy that you not only not see yourself as a victim, but that you are going to live a beautiful and valuable life. And Benji... Talk about what this has done for the fraternity uh, and what it's done for you personally. I, I'd, I'd love to get that, that angle of this story. Um, I definitely think for the fraternity it became a point of pride. Um, different guys have been 
involved in everything. Um, I know, for example, when we did the Pettyjean trip and a bunch of guys realized they couldn't get off work to make it, um, a lot of guys got uh, upset about it. Um, and so it's definitely become something that's like when we can get enough guys to actually plan a sufficient trip, um, they get excited about it. Um, so that's uh, been pretty great. What, and what was the second question? And for you, what did it do for you personally in terms of uh, doing this kind of, just performing this kind of just act of kindness? Um, well, for, for me personally, it was just uh, rewarding. Um, like I said, taking her up there and seeing her get really excited. But um, I think something else that happened um, was after the story went, uh, the story got some attention. Um, and after that happened, um, I uh, was actually receiving emails from uh, graduate brothers or alumni of our fraternity that have um, daughters or sons with cerebral palsy, and they were telling me how they appreciate this, how it means a lot. Um, I've actually met a graduate brother here in the Little Rock area um, that has a daughter with cerebral palsy, and he just talked about how um, it really means a lot, and it really sticks to what our fraternity is supposed to be when we do things like this. So um, to me, it's meant quite a bit. Well, what a great story, and thank you, Diaja, for coming on, and thank you, Benji, as well. It's our random act of kindness story of the week, and we do these every week, and this is as good as it gets. And for anybody who's listening and has an idea or a judgment about this generation, I promise you there are stories after stories. I know here at Ole Miss, I watch what the young people do in terms of charity drives, raising money for, for, for the poor, raising money for kids, teaching literacy. I'm humbled to see those, those young people do what they do. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. And again, thank you, Benji. Thank you, Diaja, for joining us. You're welcome. You're welcome. You bet, and uh, Godspeed to both of you. And by the way, if you want to hear all that we do here on Our American Stories, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And one of the things we love to talk about on the show while we're preparing for the show, well, almost all the time, is food. While we're eating, we're actually talking about where we're going to eat next. That's how bad it is here at Our American Stories. And this story is about sandwiches and the law and class action lawsuits. Here's Jesse. I like Eating sandwiches, eating sandwiches for lunch and dinner. Ah, uh, yeah, sandwiches. Who doesn't love eating a sandwich? I'm probably eating one right now, and you wouldn't even know it. Sandwiches, like Mom used to make. Sanctuary from an insane world. The one place you can go to get away from the nightmarish current events, bad weather... <laughs> 
awful things happening in the news. Turn now to that scandal at Subway. You may have heard about this one. It turns out some of their famous footlong sandwiches have been coming in a bit short. Oh, God. I think size matters. To the courtroom, a new proposed class action lawsuit is now accusing Subway of deceptive advertising. Oh, no! no. God! If they're following the baking procedures, they should no, get this 12 God, inches please, out of the no, oven every single no. time. No! Oh, sandwiches, too. No! Is anything sacred? But joining us to give the details of this cold-cut case is Ted Frank. Thanks for having me. He's senior attorney with the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Explain to us the details, if you wouldn't mind. The underlying story was there was this teenager in Australia who bought a sandwich. Uh, he bought a foot long, and he had the, the clever idea of, well, what happens if I measure it? And his particular foot long sandwich was 11 inches or so. Uh, and he took a picture of it, and he put it on Facebook, and it went viral. Sandwich. Uh, it went even more viral because whoever the social media manager was of the uh, Australian affiliates of Subway, uh, they didn't handle it very well. They said, oh, well, here we have the metric system, so when we say foot long, it's just a, just, just a puffery. It's not really a description of how long the sandwich is. And that, of course got people really angry. How angry did they get? Uh, there, there's now global worldwide controversy over how long Subway footlong sandwiches are. Uh, and, and, and Subway realizes that they've stepped in it. So they, 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 they come forward and they say, look, we want everybody to have a footlong sandwich if they've ordered a footlong sandwich and we're going to take all these additional steps uh, in terms of quality control and uh, inspections of our franchisees and make sure that if you if you if you've ordered a foot long sandwich you're getting a foot long sandwich and if you get a piece of bread that's not a foot long uh, tell the tell the manager and they'll they'll give you a new sandwich uh, so subway you know the, the, the market works jeez we hardly made a dent to that 10-foot hoagie oh give it a good hope subway had whatever problem it had uh, people got upset, and, and Subway responded to the market pressure and said, "You you want your 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 sandwiches to be a foot long? We're we're going to make sure that they're a, f a foot long." We've been eating that thing for a week. I think the mayonnaise is starting to turn. Two more feet, and I can fit it in the fridge. But our story can't just end here, can it? Everybody's happy, right? Not so fast. By this time, the lawyers had come in. Uh, and without doing any real investigation other than seeing the news stories, they, they grabbed a plaintiff and they said, we're bringing a class action on behalf of everybody in America who uh, did not have a foot-long sandwich. And they presumably thought that they were going to get rich off of this. <coughs> Excuse me. I'd like to be alone with the sandwich for a moment. They hadn't really investigated whether uh, the class members, their clients, actually had any injury. And it, it turns out that, that Subway distributes lumps of dough uh, to its franchisees. And, and the lumps of dough are of uniform size, and the franchisees are supposed to stretch them out and bake them. And, and sometimes they're careful about baking them, and they're, 11, and, and they're 12 and a half inches, and sometimes they're less careful, and, and they don't rise all the way, and, and it's 11 and a half inches. But it's the same amount of bread. Uh, nobody's getting shortchanged. It's just the shape of the bread that's different. <laughs> that's what she said. The lawyers still wanted their money. But there was just one little problem. Nobody really had an injury. 
uh, and the, even the lawyers recognized, wow, this, this suit isn't getting anywhere. Uh, but they still wanted to get paid. So they agreed to a settlement, and the settlement was Subway agrees to do what they've already announced that they're going to do, which is to have a quality control program to make sure all the bread is a foot long. And, and the lawyers will get a half million dollars for uh, making Subway agree to what they've already agreed to do. Uh, and we're going to call that a class action settlement. So let's just recap for a second here. Someone complains to Subway that their $5 foot long is, in fact, a little short at 11.5 inches. Subway, being the upstanding sandwich slingers that they are, correct the issue from the top down with no questions asked. Then some lawyer caught wind of the situation and turned it into a good old-fashioned shakedown in the form of a class-action lawsuit to the tune of $500,000. So what did the Competitive Enterprise Institute do about it? We came in and we objected. Uh, and at the district court level in, in the Western District of Wisconsin, uh, the, the federal judge there, still sort of rubber-stamped the settlement, rubber-stamped the uh, giant attorney fee, and, and said, well, you know, the, the case wasn't that strong, so it's okay that there's just this injunction that doesn't really do anything, and it's okay that the lawyers are getting paid because they worked really hard. Uh, and we said, well, but you settled the class action. You, you were supposed to be representing consumers, but you haven't done anything for your clients, and that's not right. And so we took that up on appeal to... Uh, the Federal Seventh Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals. And uh, we got a good panel, uh, led by Judge Diane Sykes. And, and she immediately recognized what we were arguing, that uh, we had these attorneys who were bringing this bogus lawsuit that couldn't possibly accomplish anything for consumers, but were hoping to get paid. And she correctly recognized this as a scam and and, and uh, ordered the settlement thrown out and, uh, and, and suggested very strongly that the entire case should be thrown out and that the lawyers shouldn't be allowed to represent a class like this. And that's indeed what happened on remand. So the trial lawyers get all the money, the consumer doesn't get any of it, and the consumer has to pay for the trial costs. Right, and, and it's a double hit, actually, because if the lawyers know that they don't actually have to win anything for consumers to get paid, uh, they're going to bring more bad lawsuits. They're, they're, they're not going to... So consumers are... It's actually a triplet because you have these additional bad lawsuits that just cost consumers more money because they're raising costs to anybody. It's pure social cost. It's pure rent-seeking. Uh, you have consumers not getting anything. And then when consumers actually are injured... And there, there are legitimate class actions to be brought. The, the lawyers are still going to be focusing on the cases, on, on the crummy, uh, easy-to-settle quick cases, uh, rather than on the, on the legitimate cases. So get, getting a, a court to rule, as the Seventh Circuit did on this one, is, I think, great for consumers. Uh, it, it forces lawyers to focus on the cases where they can actually win things for consumers. And... It avoids these uh, costs of, of just meritless lawsuits. Ted Frank, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. Senior attorney with the Competitive Enterprise Institute. And now, I guess I'll have pizza for lunch. And great job on that, Jesse. And we bring you these stories, not because they're silly, but because in the end, they cost the American people a whole lot of money. And again, there are good lawsuits, and boy, there are some really bad ones. And the bad ones... Well, they can crowd out the good ones. And thanks to Ted Frank 
for the work he's doing at the Competitive Enterprise Institute, senior attorney there, and again, fighting for consumers in the end. These costs get passed along to us. This is Lee Habib, Subway's story, and that's one of our favorites here, here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and this is the story of how a Florida couple kept seven siblings, four brothers and three sisters, ages 12 to 4, together that were separated throughout four different foster homes. Sophia and Deshaun Olds, both 33, got married in 2004, and they admit that as newlyweds, they were too busy with schooling and serving in the military, both veterans who served overseas in Iraq, to think about starting a family. This is the story of how one childless married couple of 13 years became a family of nine, literally, overnight. We thought like we would never, ever get adopted, but I thought this was like a really good blessing for us. I never actually had a mom and a dad under the same roof. But it feels great. It's like they both like a half of something, like peanut butter and jelly. Hello, I'm Deshaun O's. And I'm Sophia O's. And we would like to tell you about our process, our story of adoption. We have always wanted to adopt. We've been married for about 13 years now. And it had always been in our plans to adopt and to have biological children. We actually took the classes in 2006 and were preparing to adopt a child. However, we couldn't agree upon an age. So we postponed it, got busy with life, enjoying life, continuing in our careers in college, military, us traveling. We just were enjoying life. We were having a wonderful time together with family, with friends. I know a lot of people probably wonder and question why is it that they don't have biological children? It just never happened for us. In 2013, I took a pregnancy test and the test came back positive. And it was the scariest thing to me. I cried and I cried and I cried because I wasn't ready to be a mother. I know that being a mother is one of the most important jobs, number one, in this world. And I guess I felt like I wasn't ready to do that, that I couldn't be that yet. And a couple days later, um, I miscarried. It was confirmed by the doctors, and I had miscarried. And again, I felt another form of sadness because, you know, a child 
that we would have, we no longer would have. Even though we were early on in our pregnancy, it was it was still devastating for me. No, I hadn't felt the baby kick. I hadn't felt the baby move, but it was devastating. But again, we continued life. Also, we were very active in our local church. So we were active in, my husband is the youth pastor, children's church, ages what? Four to 12, always been a part of my life just to help out with children in the church. And I guess one thing, what we always did is that every time we gave our offering, we had on the back of it, um, adopt a child on there. And then it was just no surprise that the story came out the day after Thanksgiving. And the day after Thanksgiving, what most people are doing is shopping. How we are shopping and we saw the story on Facebook, these seven children who needed a home. It was home for the holidays. And one scripture just came to my mind is that in my father's house there's many rooms and I go prepare a place for you. And in the Lord's Prayer, we do things on earth as it is in heaven. So we had a space to truly be to open our home for seven children. And we knew that we had everything that these children needed. They needed a mother, a father. They needed stability, structure, discipline with us having military. They needed love, they needed care. My husband being a teacher, me and being in social work, having those skills, the spiritual background, everything. We were just putting our whole hope and our whole trust and all of our, our dreams and our ambitions and our life in his hands. We were surrendering all when we decided to adopt our seven children. Yeah, and once we put our faith out there, it's amazing how God works it out. These students I've been serving at Rutherford High School, their parents came together and said, what can we do, what can we do? And they did everything from bringing furniture to build bunk beds to donate sports equipment to donate groceries. One parent is a farmer and truly just slaughtered a pig for us. So we have sausage, bacon, and everything else. And also our families, a day hasn't gone by that they haven't asked us or given to us, whether it be snacks for the children to take to school, whether it be cooking up a big pot of Lima beans, helping out, cooking food, getting the children off the bus when we both have to work, picking oranges, whatever it is, any extra that they have had, anything that they could give, whether it be $5, we have had that outpouring from our families from both sides. We have had that from complete strangers that live thousands and thousands of miles away. It has been no stress, no struggle at all. And I do believe that that goes back to us doing the will of God to help build his kingdom, to provide a home for, as the Bible calls them, orphans. You know, that is something that the Bible states we should do. Yes, in James 127, it says true religion is to take care of the orphans. And we all know that it is more blessed to give than to receive if we were allowed to adopt these seven children, we would do it. We would work every day of our lives to make sure that they are cared for. And I think what's most important too is for them to see and to have an example of what it's like to have a father who is the head of the household, who 
have a strong faith and belief in God and who can teach them, who can lead the family. And I know that they enjoy that. I know that they feel privileged and proud to know that their dad is up there teaching them. You can see the smiles on their face and they enjoy talking about it afterwards. They ask lots of questions. Um, so that whole aspect has been wonderful to have him up front teaching our children um, about God, about the things that they should do in life to be saints, to be good children, to grow up, to be successful. Yep. And I like to just thank for my spiritual fathers because I did not have a biological father involved in my life, but my spiritual fathers from my pastors to different men in my church who helped show me the way right there. And I could just use that to impart not only to my children, but all the children I minister to on a weekly basis. So I think it's important to know that in this story of adoption, I am not called to be a minister, to be behind a pulpit, to preach at a church, to be a pastor. But I know that this is my calling that God has placed in my life and I am embracing it. I am enjoying it. And that's why I can say that I am not stressed because it is something that we are doing that we are supposed to do. So it makes it so much easier. Does it require a lot from us? A lot of time, um, a lot of correction that we have to do, but it is also worth it, every part of it. This is what we're supposed to do in life. These seven children are our calling to be their mother and their father. And we take it just as serious as if um, it was a pastor over a church or a CEO over a business. This is us, a manager over a team. This is us. This is what we are called to do. And we give him all the praise, the glory, the honor for it, because without him, we would not be able to do this. And we are doing it. And that is our story. And what a story it was. And thanks, Greg, for doing that. And thank you, Sophia and Deshaun Olds, for recording that. And for doing what you did, it's an inspiration. People listening who are thinking about it, well, just do it. Fill that house up with love. They immediately adopted seven children who needed a home. And one's a teacher. Well, they didn't have the means, but they did it anyway. And look at the fruits of their love. And it was their faith, of course, the fruits of their faith. They just did it. They answered to a higher power. And by the way, NBC's Today Show, ABC News, Inside Edition, Miami Herald, Parents.com, and People, they all did this story, but they somehow managed to leave the faith walk of this couple out of the story. And just a few things they said, and it was Sophia who said this, once you put your faith out there, it's amazing how God works it out. And in came the food, and in came the help from the family members, in came all that love. True religion is to take care of the orphans. And if more Christians in this great country did what this young couple did, my goodness, we could solve a lot of problems in our country. A lot of homeless problems, a lot of kids without parents. And we'll bring these adoption stories to you because they're beautiful, and hopefully they have some imitative power, that is... Some of you listening may just decide to fill your home with some kids in need. This is Our American Story. Sophia and Deshaun 
Olds' story and those seven kids they adopted, their stories too. This is Our American Stories. You're listening to Bono introducing The Streets With No Name. And he's been doing this a lot in his life now. Singing his favorite gospel song openly and with passion. We've done a lot of stories of the song here on this show. This is the first time we're spending an hour. And it's not just the story of a song. It's the story of a man. John Newton's story. The writer of Amazing Grace. And John Newton grew up in the 18th century under very difficult conditions. His father was a seaman out in the sea, making his living rough, rough times, rough, rough life. And to tell the story of John Newton and his early life and the seminal experience in his life, which was getting drafted at a very young age to go off and fight on a military warship. Imagine this, the 18th century, a young man just, well, you don't exactly volunteer for these positions back then. Here's Brian Edwards, author of Through Many Dangers, The Story of John Newton. He gave a lecture telling this mesmerizing story. It started with this seminal moment in young John Newton's life. 1744, the French fleet was becoming increasingly aggressive in the Channel, and King George II grew alarmed. The British Navy was always short of sailors. After all, who in his right mind would volunteer to be treated like an animal and suffer the butchery of 18th century naval warfare for just 24 shillings a month? That's £1.20 in modern money, especially when you could earn at least twice that amount if you were in the merchant service. And the government's answer to the shortage of recruitment was the infamous press gang. As part of the war effort, on Saturday the 25th of February, 1744, a day of strong gales with snow, First Lieutenant Thomas Ruffin delivered to Captain Carteret of HMS Harwich, anchored just off Sheerness in Kent, eight impressed men, one of whom was John Newton. A merchant sailor was 
always a prime target of the press gangs, and his bandy legs, his bawdy language and his rolling gait was a giveaway on the waterfront at Chatham. His name was duly entered into the muster roll early in March. HMS Harridge was a fourth-rate man of war, 976 tons, 50 guns, a length of 140 feet and a crew of 300. For a month, John suffered cruelly as new crew members were literally beaten into submission. Admiral Vernon, one of the more humane admirals of his time, commented, I quote, Our fleets are defrauded by injustice, marred by violence and maintained by cruelty. Food was almost inedible, water foul, discipline harsh, escape virtually impossible. And yet because his father was a merchant sea captain and Newton himself had already been to sea with his father, he was soon promoted as midshipman. Newton had a rough start, but he didn't give up. Even amidst his forced service, he did not lose hope. Specifically with the love of his life, Polly, he made sure to write her as often as he could. On the 24th of January, 1745, John, just off a four-hour watch and at one o'clock in the morning, found a space somewhere on the cramped crew quarters to write a letter. He began, Dear Polly... This is the first letter we have from Newton's pen, and it's a warm, flowing, passionate, 18th century love letter, which closed, I am your most faithful, devoted admirer, Newton. And it ended with a wonderful flourish of squiggles. John was turned 19 and far removed from his mother's Christian faith. Mary Catlett, whom he nicknamed Polly, was just 16, two days before the letter was written. John was raised with a strong Christian faith, but the life of a seaman didn't afford him the best environment to grow into a godly man. All of his early Christian influence came from his mom. John was born on the 24th of July, 1725, at a little village called Wapping, just a mile downriver from the Tower of London. His mother, Elizabeth, was married to a merchant captain living in Red Lion Street. She was a sincere Christian and a member of the independent chapel of Dr. Jennings. John was brought up, therefore, on Bible stories and the hymns of Isaac Watts. Sadly, his mother died just before John's seventh birthday, and by the age of 11, he was at sea with his father. Two years of inferior schooling was all that he ever had. Dr. Johnson, the great uh, lexographer, uh, said uh, of Wapping that one day one had only to visit the place, quote, to see such modes of life that one could scarcely imagine. Well, before he was the age of 11, John had seen all those modes of life. He could walk down the end of his street and at execution dock, as it was known, he could watch mutineers and pirates hanging in chains until three tides had washed over them. He saw at a young age things most adults could not handle, but he maintained a soft side, and especially for the woman he gave his heart to. In 1742, John's father had arranged for him to take a job in Jamaica, and with time to kill beforehand, he visited the family of Mr. and Mrs. Catlett in Chatham, uh, in whose home Elizabeth Newton had died. They had six children, and Mary, the eldest girl, was almost 14 years when he first met her. 
as soon as John saw her, he fell madly in love with his Polly. A love that he claimed exceeded all that the Romantics ever thought of, and it remained true and steadfast and unwavering until Mary's death almost 50 years later. And when we come back, more on the life of John Newton, author, writer of Amazing Grace, and we'll capture and chronicle how that song crossed an ocean and became the most played, sung, and known gospel song in America and, of course, the world. This is Our American Stories. American stories, and we continue with the story of a song, and of course, the story of a man, the song Amazing Grace, the man John Newton who wrote it. Newton's life did not fly into a happily ever after parade of events. Indeed, all the evil that he experienced ultimately became entrenched in his heart. But from now on, his life became a tangled web of romance, impetuous action, and unbelief. John missed his boat to Jamaica, angered his father, visited Chatham as often as he could, overstayed his welcome, had no career to offer Mary or impress her parents, and finally, for his stupidity, he was himself impressed into His Majesty's Navy. When he wrote that passionate love letter in January 1745, John Newton had been converted to a free-thinking deist. That is, if there is a God, and we cannot know if there is, he's unconcerned, unconnected with this world. And therefore, from now on, morality was for John Newton to decide. He would plan his own life. The Bible stories and the hymns of Isaac Watts were things of the past. John Newton became an evangelist for unbelief. Years later, he wrote in his diary on the 21st of March, 1757, I quote, I was at that time a sinner beyond the common measure of men, having fallen from a pretty close outward profession of the gospel into the blackest apostasy, so that at the age of 22, or rather much sooner, I not only took counsel with the ungodly and walked in the way of sinners, but I was set in the seat of the scorner. I had lived for about four years, not a denier only, but a despiser of the gospel, venting the most outrageous blasphemies in all companies and upon all occasions, speaking of redemption, that amazing display of divine love, wisdom and power as an unholy, insignificant thing, and the person of my ever-blessed and gracious Redeemer as an imposter. In all this time, I believe I never was in the company of any person that made the least pretense of a religious life, but I either endeavoured to laugh him out of it, or if that failed, scorned him in my heart. Never opened or spoke of the scriptures, but in order to introduce a profane jest upon them. Never spent half an hour with anyone with freedom, but I tempted him to sin. 
but my practice was as vile and abominable as my principles, so that I not only, as many others, indulge youthful sallies, as they are called by some, but lived in the habitual practice of every vice in which my age and circumstances were capable, theft and drunkenness only excepted. And in all these, I was a ringleader and a seducer of others. This was a man who had come to hate God and all those that followed him. The one thing that his heart had a space for, that he longed for, besides his evil ways, was his Mary, and he tried to reach her, but to no avail. The thought of five years' separation from Mary was too much for John, and shortly after that love letter was written, John Newton deserted his ship. He was recaptured by dragoons, and Captain Carteret ordered what was known then as a red-checked shirt on the grating. Twenty-five to thirty lashes across his bare back, after which he was carried below where his wounds were cauterized with vinegar, neat spirit, salt water, or hot tar, and for days he was in a delirium. In May 1745, the fleet was anchored at Madeira, and Newton managed to get himself exchanged for a seaman from a small merchant ship called the Pegasus. And this was possibly his introduction to slavery. The Pegasus was outward bound for Sierra Leone and the adjacent parts of the West African coast. If the Pegasus was a slave trader, her cargo was composed of an uninteresting assortment of lead, copper kettles, brass pans, ladles, basins, boilers, guns, gunpowder, knives, and other miscellaneous items. And then, darkly stored away in her hold, was a grisly array of chains, shackles, neck collars, leg and handcuffs and thumbscrews. Part of her cargo was the money with which to purchase slaves from the local traders on the West African coast, and the other part was the means by which the slaves were kept in order during the fearful second leg of the trade mission from Africa to the West Indies or the Americas, a journey often exceeding seven weeks. Having offloaded the slaves, the ship would then take on sugar, ginger, rum, pearls, cotton and all the other commodities eagerly awaited by the British consumers and it would return home across the final leg of the Atlantic Ocean. It's what became known as the triangular trade. And thus began John Newton's deep work and entanglement with his darkest, darkest of professions, the slave trade itself. John Newton was to become very familiar with this triangular trade, which would generally take somewhere between 12 and 14 months to complete. It was considered at the time, I quote, a genteel occupation. He might have done well, but he worked for an unscrupulous trader and he became a virtual slave himself and the pity of slaves. In fact, he sank so low that he dabbled in animism, at one time even worshipped the moon, and was in the parlance of the time a white man become black. He lived and believed like the natives. In February 1747, by a quite remarkable coincidence, he found himself on board a merchant ship, the Greyhound, bound for England. Only his love for Mary and a blatant lie from the ship's captain actually made him head for home. He soon angered the captain by his foul language and bawdy songs, which often ridiculed both the ship and the captain without mentioning either of them by name. 
But of course, by the same token, he was very popular with the crew. Halfway across the Atlantic, disaster hit the little ship. On the 10th of March, 1748, a fierce storm shattered the mast and rigging, and the little ship was only kept afloat by her cargo of timber and beeswax. Newton joked that it would be something to laugh over a jug of beer when they arrived at port, to which a sailor on board responded, Oh, no, no, it's too late now. And that, for some reason, went through Newton like a knife. For the first time since a childhood, Newton found himself praying. Lashed to the wheel or working the pumps gave him time to think. Involuntarily, he repeated the words that he had learned from his mother, Proverbs 1, 23, all the way through 31, and his memory seemed aided as he muttered above the wind and the torn canvas these condemning words. Because I have called and ye refused, I have stretched out my hand and no man has regarded, but ye have set at naught all my counsel and would none of my reproof. I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock you when your fear cometh, when your fear cometh as desolation and your destruction cometh as a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you. Then they shall call me, but I will not answer. They shall seek me early, but they shall not find me. Finally, after days of anguish and torture of mind, hope and peace flooded in as he put his wavering trust in Christ alone. He later wrote, On that day the Lord sent from on high and delivered me out of deep waters. The greyhound, broken and barely afloat, arrived off Ireland in Loch Swilly, appropriately on Good Friday, the 8th of April, 1748. John Newton's hard heart had been beaten soft, but he had nothing. In his old ways, well, they began calling to him. No money, and with not enough gall to borrow from Polly's father, John set out on what he called his long, lonely walk back to Liverpool. He couldn't afford a coach. He walked every one of the 250 miles of the journey. He signed on as first mate on a slave ship, the Brownlow, and he backslid to the point of becoming almost as bad as before. A near-fatal fever brought him to his senses, and in his delirium and just out of it, he gave his life wholly to Christ. And when we come back, more of the story of Amazing Grace. It's John Newton's story. Of course, it's the story of the song. And of course, it's the story of God's influence himself on a man who needed saving and needed grace. The story of Amazing Grace, the story of John Newton, here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of John Newton and the story of his song, Amazing Grace. And we're listening, by the way, to Brian Edwards, the author of Through Many Dangers, the story of John Newton. God had brought Newton to his breaking point yet again, and finally his life began to fall in place. But he had not yet realized the evils of the slave trade. On the 1st of February, back home, 1750, John married Mary at St. Margaret's Parish Church in Rochester, Kent. He had been offered a ship of his own. Now he had something to offer her, and of course, in 18th century style, her father as well. Six months later, in command of his own ship, the Duke of Argyle, a hundred tons and a crew of almost 30, including the captain and mate, he set out on his first journey as a slave ship captain. And for this genteel occupation, he sought the prayers of Christian people before he left. Now, his voyages were always fraught with danger. In the first place, The captain always had, by definition, an unruly crew. Sometimes he recorded in his log that he had to pin some of them to the deck in irons in order to bring them to heel. And then there was always the problem of the slaves looking for an opportunity to escape with 100, 150 or more below decks packed in uh, like books on a shelf. If they did manage to break free, and there are many records where they did on ships, they would massacre understandingly the entire crew before they themselves uh, tried to bring the ship back home. And then, with an unruly crew and the slaves always looking for an opportunity for escape, there was disease and fever. Newton later worked out that something like one out of five sailors never returned home, which compared roughly to the figure of one of all four slaves who died in transit. And when you did land on the African coast or the West Indies, intrigue and treachery by black and white traders alike was rife. Newton said there was only one person on the African coast he ever trusted. Privateers and pirates ruled the seas. Many of the ships to and froing in an earlier century between the new, new lands of America and uh, the home country disappeared without trace because the Barbary pirates from North Africa that were also patrolling the seas made sure that the economy of the North African coast depended upon white slaves, a fact that is not often brought to notice. There was bad weather too and not very good navigation tools and rats ate at the sails and the feet of slaves and sailors alike. This was not a trip. He took only once. He made three journeys in this command position, but he was increasingly uncomfortable with his way of life, which he said felt more like a turnkey or jailer, and it was. And, of course, he hated his separation from Mary, but he had no other career. He was a sailor. He knew nothing else. In November 1754, he was waiting for the fourth command in charge of a brand new ship that was being built for him. He was, in fact, a most successful uh, slave trader, and on his, his third and what proved to be his last voyage, he lost not one member of the crew and not one slave in his journeying, which is unique in the annals of the early the slave traders. But while he was waiting for this in Liverpool, he suddenly experienced a seizure which passed him out for just a few minutes. He recovered. He never experienced it again, but it ended his sailing career. So from August 1755, he was a customs officer at Liverpool. He was actually known as a tide surveyor. His job was to be rowed out by a party of men that he had under his command to every incoming ship and search them for contraband, uh, which, of course, he was very able to do, being an experienced sea captain himself. He knew where you would hide something on board. 
He changed careers again and began his adjustment to land life in Liverpool. Liverpool was a very hard city. Hard and godless. But it was while he was here that he began writing sermons and felt called to the ministry and was invited to preach in one or two churches. He nearly entered the independent ministry and there were times when he seriously considered becoming an evangelist for John Wesley and John Wesley would like him to have considered becoming his second in command to take over leadership when he himself died. But as it happened, and if I may cut the story shorter, on the 17th of June, 1764, he was ordained into the Church of England and settled at Oney in Buckinghamshire as curate in charge of St. Peter's and St. Paul's. And for 16 years, he was a patient, hard-working, caring country parson, often, we are told, wearing his old sea captain's jacket as he visited his people. Not very clerical, but that was Newton. What was his ministry like as a pastor? He wasn't apparently a great orator. Richard Cecil, his first biographer, said, I quote, his utterance was far from clear and his attitudes ungraceful. But he was a warm preacher and he had a consistent life to back it up. He once wrote, I measure ministers by square measure. I have no idea of the size of the table if you only tell me how long it is. But if you tell me how wide it is, I can tell you all its dimensions. So when you tell me what a man is in the pulpit, I want to know what he is like out of the pulpit before I shall know his size. His aim, he once said, was not to acquire the character of a ready speaker, but to win souls to Christ. He claimed he only preached longer than an hour when he had very little to say. Newton was a humble man, a self-taught man, but then came one of the more important moments in his life. He sat down and he wrote the book about his own life story, and it caused quite a sensation. The first year at Olney saw the publication, 1764, of his story, An Authentic Narrative. It was remarkably successful, translated into many languages as well. It was the story of his life up to that point, that year, 1764. Students, politicians, even an admiral made the day's journey from London to Oney to see this man once beaten on deck for deserting his ship. What an incredible testimony of a changed life. Newton continued his testimony by writing hymns. But he did this in a very creative and purposeful way. Now, for years, John composed a short aid memoir for his congregation. It was a gift he employed so badly when he was at sea and was now turning to the service of the master. It could take him up to two days to compose a hymn, but when it was completed, it was actually the outline of his sermon. He learned it because as he walked down the streets, he heard the women at their bobbins, their bobbin tells, reciting little ditties. It's where all the village gossip went the rounds, actually. And they would cite a ditty to keep them in a rhythm of their, of their bo lace bobbins. And he realized that they had a remarkable memory of remembering verses. So he thought, well, why don't I give them something worthwhile remembering? And he would give an outline of his sermon in the form of a hymn. They forgot the sermon. They learned the hymn they knew what the sermon was all about 
Eventually, he wrote a new hymn for his prayer meeting each week and frequently expounded it to the congregation before they were permitted to, permitted to sing it for the first time. He began in earnest at the close of 1772, and within six years, he had written and expounded over 300 hymns. Now, many of his hymns were topical, and that's why they haven't come down to us. They reflected life at Olney, winter, spring, summer, harvest, a violent storm, a sharp frost, the earthquake of 1775, an eclipse of the moon on the 30th of July, 1776, the great fire at Olney, the year later, 1777, and even the visit of a lion to the town. They all provided local themes for hymns that would fix people's minds on much more important issues. Some of the hymns, of course, have become part of our national heritage. He was a godly man, John Newton, but practical too. His understanding of the human heart, his experience of it, equipped him to lead and teach God's word in a way that made sense for the everyday life. And of course, his most famous hymn of all, Amazing Grace, well, that's just the story of John Newton's life. His famous hymn, Amazing Grace, was based upon a sermon he preached on the first morning of a new year from 1 Chronicles chapter 17, verses 16 to 17, where King David reviews his, the mercy of God to a man as weak and sinful as himself. And John Newton in this hymn, as you well know, reviewed his own life. And when we come back, we're going to talk about how the song, the verses, came to America and became, well, the song we all know and love. The story of a song, Amazing Grace. This is Our American Stories. listening to Andrea Bocelli, his version of Amazing Grace. This is the story of a song. We just covered John Newton's life. He wrote the words. What about the music? Where did it come from and how did it come to America? How did this American, essentially American song get here from Great Britain? Well, that story is chronicled in Stephen Turner's Amazing Grace. Pick the book up. It's terrific. He also wrote the great book, A Man Called Cash. I don't think there's a finer music writer in America than Steve Turner. Well, he started off with a quote from George Pullen Jackson, who wrote the book Spiritual Folk Songs of Early America. This is a 1937 book, a musicologist. And he wrote, quote, The poem is by Newton, but the tune's source is unknown to the Southern compilers. In other words, he had searched, he couldn't find it. And so we're not going to spend a lot of time on that, because there are some breakthrough artists that take this song into the 20th century and propel it 
into every room, every bedroom in America and the world. And one of the first is a gospel singer named Mahalia Jackson, who had this to say about the song and about the types of music that imbued the song with its melodies and its rhythms. She said, quote, I believe the blues and jazz music and even rock and roll stuff all got their beat and their melody from the sanctified church. We Baptists sang sweet and we had the long and short meter on beautiful songs like Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound. But when those holiness people tore into I'm so glad that Jesus lifted me up, they came up with a real jubilation. Let's take a listen to Mahalia Jackson's version. And then it was the Falkies who really popularized the song. Said Turner, quote, Pete Seeger seemed like an unlikely user of Amazing Grace. Not only was he not a Christian, but at a time when the most feared enemy of Christian America was godless Russia, he was a member of the American Communist Party. And then came the hit of all hits, Judy Collins. Again, another folky. And the watershed event was this a cappella single released by Judy in December of 1970, which climbed into the bestseller charts in both Britain and America. Although a pop hit, Turner wrote, Collins was not a pop singer. She was a folk singer who never disguised her roots. Her recording of Amazing Grace owed nothing to either rock or pop and in fact flouted the conventional wisdom of both. Said Judy Collins, quote, It was a song that I felt and had always known. It had come down to me from rural Tennessee, where my mom's family had produced missionaries and ministers, and from Idaho, where my dad had farmed. It was sung in the Methodist Church in Denver, where I was a part of the choir as a child. Here's Judy Collins' version. That said 
Of the 500 commercially released recordings held by the Library of Congress, 97% were made in the years after Judy Collins recorded that song. And by the way, she's not a believer, but she loved the song, and that's what's so beautiful about this country. The non-believers can celebrate believers' words, and sometimes vice versa. Now let's take a walk through some of the other great versions of this song, and there are so many. But let's take a listen to how Al Green sets things up. And just a little bit of this. One verse. Ah, And from the soulful Memphis sounds across the pond to Ireland and the Celtic women. And back to the more urban and African-American traditions, here's Ray Charles. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. John Newton said this about himself, his own life, and one of the last things he ever wrote, actually. And he was writing this to his God, quote, Perhaps thy grace may have recovered some from an equal degree of apostasy, infidelity, and profligacy, but few of them have been redeemed from such a state of misery and depression as I was in upon the coast of Africa when thy unsought mercy wrought for my deliverance. And so we close with Alan Jackson. This is our American stories, the story of a song, John Newton's story, Amazing Grace's story. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. 
Ah. Uh-huh. 